Okay, everyone, we're going to go ahead and get started. You can open up to Galatians chapter 2 because we're covering that entire chapter tonight. So over in Galatians chapter 2, who feels pretty confident in their reading skills? Nobody does. Sean does. Adam does. Okay, so what we're going to do is first we're going to have a review that I'm going to get you two to read the whole chapter for me in a bit. So first, as way of background, let's make this interactive. Tell me, what is the main problem of the book of Galatians? Why is Paul writing this letter? There's an apostasy in the congregation. Okay, there's an apostasy. What specifically is the problem that's going on there? Falling back to the old law. Okay, the old law. We have certain people coming in. We call them Judaizing teachers for the most part. And they're coming in and they're saying you need to maybe keep some of these old festivals, some of these old holidays, some of these old traditions. And specifically, they're making a big fuss about circumcision, okay? So they're having all these problems about trying to get people to go back into the old law. What has Paul written to them so far? Somebody or all of you together, tell me what's kind of happened in chapter 1. He starts off with a greeting, and then what's the next section that he goes into? He reprimands them. Okay, for what? Falling away so quickly, okay? They very quickly turned from what? He uses a specific word here. From their no, that's that's revelation. Yeah. Okay, to a different gospel. Okay, they have fallen away from the actual gospel, the grace of Christ, into a different gospel. And what is that really? It's not a gospel at all. It's just something that men have made up, or maybe angels have made up. It's just something that's completely false. And what is the only thing that they are supposed to trust from now on? The gospel that he delivered to them. Yes, the, apostle, the, the, the gospel that the apostles delivered unto them. And even if an apostle comes back and says something different from now on, they don't believe the new thing. They believe what has been delivered, because that is the true gospel. What is Paul starting to after that? He starts off, and you're right, he reprimands them first. He gets on to them for leaving the gospel. And then he, he kind of makes a sudden change into what topic? His own history. Okay, his own history, which seems a little odd, right? seems a little odd that Paul is going from talking about them leaving the gospel to all of a sudden talking about him becoming a Christian. Now, you guys explain to me, why would this be relevant to the Galatians? They've never met him. Okay, they've never met him. That probably isn't true uh, because this is after the first journey, and assuming that this is to the churches of the south part of Galatia, he's been through some of there. Um, now, he does talk about how they treated him and, or how they thought of him before they had met him, um, but I think that this is after the first missionary journey because we have the mention of the, what's it called? Council of Jerusalem. Okay, what else? Why would he write this to them? Because he had made a big change from the law. Yeah, he had made a big change. For the most part, if I can give you guys like a theme for the first two chapters of the book of Galatians, Paul really goes into a lot of narrative talking about transformations. Okay, His sort of transition from the old law to the new law. And that is the point of the first two chapters. At the end of chapter 2, we'll get to it a bit tonight, and then 3 onward, he talks a lot about doctrine. But at first, Paul is spending a lot of time talking about transformations. Okay, so let's, uh, let's look at a few of these things. First off, obviously, what's the clear transformation that Paul made in his life? Most Perse- persecuting the church as a Jew to a member of the church. Okay, so he went from being a Jew to being a Christian. So he changed his allegiances, if you will, from the Pharisees and everything to Christ. And so Paul changes in that big way. What are some of the other transformations that maybe you remember him talking about during the first chapter? In verse 4, maybe this one is a little bit unstated, but he talks first about how they are in Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Okay, So if they have been delivered from the present evil age, what are they now? You were evil. You've been delivered from that. You are good. Okay, maybe that's a, that's a word which you use, justified, sanctified, all sorts of things we can put in there. So they're being transformed from evil unto good. Down in verse 14, we get a a different description here. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul was very into these traditions, very zealous about them. Now what is he zealous about? Christ. Christ. Now he's not zealous about these things, the traditions of his fathers. He's very zealous about the one father, okay? So he's made a big transformation in his life. 
And then also in verses 14 and 15, we just read 14 where he talks about being zealous. But then verse 15 says, But when he had set me apart before I was born, who called me by his grace. And so we see a change now from Paul focusing on his own zealousy, his own works, which are really only making him even the worst sinner because he was being so zealous about being a Jew, to now he is focusing on God's grace, which is the thing that allows him to be even a better Christian. Okay, So we see all these transformations that he's making. Jew to Christian, evil to good, traditions to gospel, and zealousy to grace. But in chapter 2, which is mostly narrative, so it's kind of hard to pick a single theme for, what I see as the main transformation in this chapter is going to be described. So I can read chapter 1, verses 1, 10 through 12 for me. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. For I would have known, for I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so how does Paul describe the way he used to be? What did Paul used to be? A people pleaser, okay? So Paul went from being a people pleaser, and now if somebody can read, um, well actually let's not read anything, because this will be the point of what we're getting to. So Paul went from being a people pleaser with an A, yes? And he's been transformed into what? What are Christians now? We were people pleasers, now we are service pleasers. Okay, God pleasers, that's good. How do we view people specifically? We serve them. Okay, we serve them. We love them, if you will. So the transformation I want us to talk about mostly tonight is the transformation from people pleasers to people lovers. Okay? This is the transformation that Paul is going to be talking about for most of chapter 2. The sort of way that they are supposed to be treating each other even. And this is what's going to take care of a lot of their conflicts. So, with that in mind, we're about to read through the entire chapter. And there's going to be three main points that we're going for in this. And I'll go ahead and uh, write them up here for you guys. But the three main ways in which Paul loves. Okay, first, he would not yield. Okay, and we're going to see that as we get to verse 5. Second, he values all men. And third, God lives in him. Okay? So here are our three main points. I'll tell them to you now. We'll bring them out of the text as we get to them. But this is the way in which Paul changes from being a people pleaser into a people lover. Now... With that done, Sean, if you can read 1 through 10 for me, and Adam, you said you were willing to read. If you can read 11 through 21 for me, we'll work through the entire chapter this way. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurs because false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they may bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But, on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship, to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also was eager to do. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision part. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. 
But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. All right, thank you, readers. Now, in your mind, let's uh, break this down a little bit. Chapter 2 starts off with our first 10 verses, which is kind of Paul continuing his narrative from chapter 1. Okay, it's a continuation of the same story. And then in verse 11 through 14, he, he adds to that story with this really odd description about Peter being in the wrong and about him correcting another apostle as well as Barnabas. And then from 15 through the end of the chapter, he kind of breaks into more of the doctrine side of things, okay? Talking about salvation and how all of this should play in their lives. So, let's start off with that first section. Through chapter 1, Paul has been describing his journey from being a Jew to being a Christian to being a Christian minister, somebody who is even willing to go out and teach Gentiles. Now, he's explaining all of this because these people are having a very hard time letting go of the old law. You guys tell me. Why are they having such a hard time letting go of the old law? Something they've been doing their whole life. Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good reason. They were very used to it. It was habitual to them. What else? Well, Christianity was, um, it was derived from Judaism in a way. Jesus was a Jew. Lots of our teachings are very similar to Jewish teachings. So I think it was hard for them to separate serving God from mm -hmm. their old traditions. No, that's fair, because it's the same God, just with uh, some different descriptions in the New Testament. And even to add to that, I don't know if they felt this way. They might have felt kind of slighted in that they're building upon their old religion, or maybe they even felt a little superior, because we have you know the original, the distilled version, and you guys are branching off. So those are possible reasons. What else? Okay, so we have specifically political groups and their social circles that are pressuring them, you know, to go back into these things. Anything else you guys can think of? Douglas said they've been doing it their whole life, which is true, but how long had the group as a whole been doing it at this point? This isn't just a tradition that had been around for, you know, 40, 80 years, however long they lived then. This is something that had been around for, what are we looking at, like 1,200 years now or something about that? And so this is really big into their nationalism. They might feel patriotic about this. They have a whole lot of ancestral history all tied up with this religion, and it's made them very special from everybody else on earth. They were the only ones who had this, the only group, and they had seen you know, displays throughout their history of God saving them because they were that only group. So I imagine that this would have been a very hard thing to let go of, right? This would have been something that would have been kind of tough. And so I don't think we should give them too hard of a time in that they were trying to bring back some of these old things. It's all that their families and everybody had only known as the only way to God for like 1,200 years. And all of a sudden, that's been changed. All right, so that's the, the kind of the context of how they'd be having a hard time. But in this, Paul still reprimands them. Paul still says that he came and he would not, you know, he would not listen to them. And specifically when we get to the question of circumcision in verse 3, it says that he would not circumcise Titus. Verse 4, yet because of the false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy on our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission for even a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. This, I believe, is the first great indication in chapter 2 of Paul's love for people. Okay, And you guys tell me why. Why do I say that this verse indicates Paul's love? Any reason? Any reason why he might stand up to them? Go ahead. Well, usually, it's pretty easy to stand up for yourself if you're under attack or if your values are being, you know, compromised. 
but it's another level of, of love if you stand up and, and refuse to compromise whenever someone you care about is you know under attack and I think spiritually he saw them as being under attack and he okay. was doing everything he could that's good he saw them as almost family members here and so that's why he's willing to stand up for them that's true but isn't Paul as a Christian okay he should be a peacemaker right wouldn't the most peaceable thing to do here be like, okay, Jews, you know, like, you do your thing there and we do our thing here. Wouldn't that have been the most peaceable option? Let everybody kind of, like, decide their own thing. You know, they can do what they want over in Galatia. He's all the way back in Judea probably at this point, so it doesn't matter. Well, that would have smoothed the conflict over, but it would have created a significantly larger problem in the corruption of the gospel. Right. And that spreads, then, I mean, what's even the point? Mm-hmm. So he wasn't so much worried about, you know, helping their feelings of this, although we should be very attentive to people's feelings when we're dealing with these sort of situations. He's more worried about the situation of the gospel being further corrupted, okay? He's very much worried about that. Let's go to a few passages that I think open this up some more. Uh, over a few pages in Ephesians chapter 5, if you guys can turn over there. This is probably a chapter that you know pretty well because it's used for all sorts of topics. Ephesians 5 goes through a ton of different things, uh, talking about sexual sins, talking about uh, drunkenness, talking about husband-wife relationships and all sorts of family relationships down in chapter 6. But if somebody could read verses 1 and 2 for me of chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us, and given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. Okay, this is one of the most confusing parts about Ephesians 5, because it's all these weird commands about keeping yourself pure from the world and about, you know, like not giving into drunkenness and all these different things. And it all is supposed to connect back to walking in love like Christ did. So that's our context of verses 1 and 2. Now, Luke, if you can continue reading in 11 through 14 for me. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So we're supposed to walk in love, just like Christ did, verses 1 and 2. And one of the ways we do this is by exposing those who walk in darkness. Okay? We're showing all the gross things that they have in the dark room, making them visible. And why? How is this loving? What does he say? To bring them to life. To bring them to life? Okay. And further down, what else does he say at the end of verse 14? Continuation of that thought. Arise from the dead and awake from their sleep, and Christ will give you light. Yeah. Okay. Yours says give you light. Mine says will shine upon you. That's what you were saying. Okay. Got you now. Yeah. So we're doing this thing that is very hurtful to a person may be very hurtful to our relationship with them, but certainly very awkward altogether, okay? And we're doing this because we're walking in love. And when we do that, we show all the bad things that are in their life. We expose them. We make them feel vulnerable. We make them feel maybe bad for all these things, but it's for a loving reason. It's for the reason that we're trying to wake them up. We're trying to save them from the death they are currently living in and give them the light that is Christ. Over in 1 Peter chapter 2, it also deals with the same idea. So I can uh, go to 1 Peter 2 and read 9 through 12 for me. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not attained mercy, but now have attained mercy. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. All right, thank you. So just for reference in the future for you guys, Ephesians 5 and 6, if you took it and you just blew it up into a couple more chapters, that's basically the book of 1 Peter. Okay? It follows a lot of the same outline, goes through the same things about love in the first part and then being holy, and then we're talking here about our relationship with others, and it also goes into husbands and wives and then about a relationship with the bosses. So it's basically the same pattern, just a longer book. But anyhow, the verses we just read, we're called to be a royal priesthood. A chosen nation, very separate, very sanctified from the world. And what does it say our purpose is at the end of that passage? When others see us, those evildoers, what do they do? Glorify God. They glorify God. When? 
Yeah, on the day of visitation. Now, I think perhaps you can take different definitions here of the day of visitation about what exactly that's supposed to mean in their lives. But generally, I, I would accept that to mean we're talking about judgment day here. Okay, So we're talking about the day in which Jesus descends and visits earth again. That's what I'm assuming day of visitation is here. How are they glorifying God in the day of visitation? By seeing our works. What's the logical process between those two points? By seeing you do good, they're going to want to do good. Yeah, okay. So that may not happen at first. Maybe at first they just feel bad. Maybe they just feel like you're looking down on them, and maybe that makes them feel guilty about certain things. But what we have to offer them is not feeling bad. What we have to offer them is hope. And so that's what can lead them into that glorifying God in the day of visitation. Not because of necessarily their own works like Paul used to be doing, but because of God's grace in this situation. This is what I would say is going to be the first way in which we see Paul's love for these people in Galatians chapter 2. He is not willing to yield to these spies. He's not willing to yield to all these people who come in with Judaizing teaching. Okay, Because he loves not just the Gentiles there, but because he loves them. He loves all the people in this situation. Now, one thing that I think is important to remember here is that Paul is in a very Gentile place, and he normally goes and teaches at the synagogues, but it's mostly Gentiles that he's teaching to, okay, over in Galatia. Who is it that's doing the Judaizing teaching, though? The Jews. It's mostly the Jews, those which are his national brethren, if you will, those of which he shared this very long relationship, this very long connection, and he used to be kind of like, you know, a herald hero among them. And this is the one that he is now opposing. And really what we have to recognize here is that um, Paul would not have peace with his national brethren because Paul wanted to have salvation for his national brethren. What we're seeing here is his understanding of the priority and that he wanted salvation and glory for these people more than that he wanted them to like him or more than he wanted to make them feel good. That is the first way in which we see his love for them. Okay? Now, the question is, why? Why is it that Paul is concerned not only about the Gentiles in this situation, but also the Jews? Why is Paul so concerned about all of these people? Uh, We'll skip down a few verses now. And if somebody can read for me again, verses 9 through 10. Yeah, Galatians 2, sorry. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do. Okay, I love this passage because Paul is going in and he's talking about how excited he was to take on this entire task. And they decided to split it up. Some people go to the Jews. Some people go to the Gentiles. But they're all making sure to emphasize going to the poor, to those who are often neglected, because he was just so eager to do it. Okay? What we see now is Paul valuing all men. Paul is excited about saving those who are his national brethren, those who he's never met before, those who have been ignored by people their entire lives because they're in poverty. He is excited about saving all these people because he values them all. Uh, do you guys remember what Paul says at the beginning of Romans when he's talking about his relationship with all men? Coming all things all men? No, that's not what I'm thinking of, but it's, it's kind of related, I guess. I mean, they're in the Bible. so <laughs> Let's turn over there. Romans chapter 1. <laughs> Now, the book of Romans is written to, um, I believe, be read by the Jews and the Gentiles, both of them to understand they're standing before God, all as equal people now, part of this new covenant. But if somebody can read, um, how long you're, you were reading, if you can read 14 and 15 for me of Romans chapter 1. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. All right. So... What did, what did you say at the beginning of verse 14? I am obligated both to Okay, I am obligated. Any other translations on that? ESV says basically the same thing. I'm a debtor. I'm a debtor. Okay, that's the one that I grew up with and that I think it holds special meaning to me for some reason. Because when I think I'm obligated to somebody, I think like, I said I would. And so, you know, like I'm going to go and do it. But when I think I'm a debtor, I think I owe them. You know, like this is something I, I want to give them. You know, it's part of my honor. It's part of my responsibility. And I feel better when I get this weight off of me and instead I give it to the person who it belongs to. 
This is how Paul feels towards all people. Okay? Uh, David, your translation also as well. How does it describe the different people there? Um, Greeks and barbarians. Yeah, barbarians. I love that because, you know, I think like the typical Roman view of the world was like they were the continuation of the Greek classical culture and everybody else specifically to the north and stuff, they're all barbarians because they don't even speak Latin. And so you have like this really strong dichotomy that's going on there. And Paul is like, hey, to the civilized people, I want to teach them. Even to those people who don't even speak the same language as me and have never even heard of like Jewish traditions, I want to teach them. I want to teach all the Gentiles. I want to teach all the Jews. He's so excited about teaching all these people. Now let's return to the idea of Galatians 2 for a moment. He mentions there the Gentiles and the Galatians, but also the poor. When I mention the idea of ministering to the poor, which is what Paul is excited to do, what are some of the first things that pop in your head from the Bible? Okay, so what is that? Is that Peter when he's talking about the only true religion is this, to visit widows and orphans? So those who have need there, that's good. What else? Jesus. Jesus. Very broad answer, but okay. Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> lots of lots of healing among uh, the people who suffered from disabilities at that time. Yeah. Who were pretty much one hundred percent of the time poor because of they couldn't function in that society. Mm-hmm. Okay. So and that included the the widow who is that Cana? No, that's the wedding at Cana. Whatever the town is somewhere up there, who he, he raised her son. Um, so that was a similar situation. A lot of the lame people who just had others carry them around and stuff and could never work in their life. He ever say anything? No, I don't mean to them. I mean, did he say anything about ministering to the poor? Sorry, should have been more specific with that. Nothing, nothing any of you guys can think of. All right, Matthew 25, there's a specific judgment scene that he's describing where he has this group of people come before him. And the first group he, he, he lets in, and the second group they come up, and he says, guys, you, you can't come in. And he gives them this list of reasons that they never you know, like fed the hungry or visited those in prison or gave clothes to those who were poor and all those different things. And what did they say? When did we see you? When did we see them? Or when did we see you, rather? When did we see you, Jesus? You know, like, you haven't been around on earth for a while. You know, if we had seen you, surely we would have given you something because we really respect you. We value you. We recognize how important you are and all these things. And what did Jesus say back? As you did to the least, somebody did Yeah, okay, close enough. And so Jesus expresses this idea that all of those on earth who are poor, who are destitute, who are hopeless, and all these things, you should value every single one of them as much as you value me. Because they are just as eternal as Jesus is. They are just as valuable as Jesus is to us. They should have as much worth in our eyes that we should want to help them. Okay, This includes physical ways. This includes ways that we're helping them get back on their feet or whatever it is, and also in spiritual ways. Go ahead, Sean. Matthew 26, 11, For you have poor with you always, but me you do not have always, said Jesus. Okay. Anything else? Or are no. you Okay. <laughs> Just reading the verse. And... Yeah, okay. So that one I always get a little confused on about like what exactly he's trying to say about it. Like, hey, ignore the poor. You know, study the Bible and ignore the poor. But yes, they are with us. We can at least make that reference from the verse. And so it's something that we should take care of. Uh, with this idea... I want us to develop it a bit further. We're running out of time, but we'll hurry it up. Why is it that Paul valued all of these people? Why is it that he thought they were all so important? And to do this, we're going to read a few verses really quick. Turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If one person can read 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 17, and chapter 5, verse 1 for me. Wherefore, we thank not... Though our outward man is decayed, yet our inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is for the moment, worketh for us more and more exceedingly in eternal way forward. Okay, if you can jump down to chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the earthly house of our tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Okay, so this passage. I really like a lot because C.S. Lewis has um, a little printed sermon called the, the Weight of Glory that he explains part of this really well. But in verses 16 and 17 there, Paul is talking about how you know, we're basically jars of clay. 
okay? We are things easily broken, things which are temporary storage devices. And what we're looking for is instead that, that heavenly home that we just read about in chapter 5, okay? And the way he describes us in verse 17, I think, is beautiful. Because it says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us the eternal weight of glory. Describe that to me. When you think about your future, what is the eternal weight of glory? Okay, good. So we think of heaven. Why? What are, what are the connections there? You don't have to answer. Anybody can. Eternal. Okay. It's eternal. Good. Good. And, and I think heaven is a place where God's glory is and where it is eternal. Okay, so we share in the glory of God there in heaven. So I think that's the, the main connection that we're getting at there. We're being prepared for this eternal weight of glory. And the weight of it, I think, is very important there. Because in a way, humans have their own glory, don't they? Is this what you're getting at, or do you, do you go ahead and say your comment? Yeah, I was going to say, like, since we've, like, we've been here on Earth, we don't really know what it's like to really truly be in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. Like, to be, like, right there in front of Him, in, like, His awe and His glory. Kind of like, um, like He mentioned in Isaiah, what Isaiah was, when he was in the holiness of holiness. And so I think, like, adding to what you were about to say about the weight part, like, just how serious it really is. Mm -hmm. Just how intense it really is. Yeah, and so this is the potential of humanity, okay? This is the potential of not just us in here. This is the potential of every single person. Uh, we probably won't go over there because we're, we're running low on time. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spends a lot of time talking about the resurrection from the dead, okay? He spends a lot of time talking about the ways in which we'll, we'll come back and maybe what that'll look like and all sorts of things. We are going to read this, I'm sorry. But in verse 42 through 45, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, The first man became a living being. The last at, or the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is the potential of every single person. Everybody can be somebody who dies natural and physically and all these things, and they are raised spiritually and glorily, and they are raised, okay, in this life-giving way in which Christ enables us. Down in verse 49 also as well. Just as we've been born in the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is what people can be, all right? So tell me this. How does this affect not just your view of yourself, but your view of other people? Talk to me. We know there's spiritual potential. Okay, we know there's spiritual potential. That's, that's good. And develop that idea more. What is, what is this spiritual potential that we should know about them? It's a, it's a value. Um, it's inherent possibility. And if they have this potential to become pleasing to God, than to not bring them to that full potential would be to waste it. Okay. It would be to waste the value. That's very good. So we, we should see them as something that has, um, we should see them as somebody that has value. That's very good. What else about that potential is going on? I, I guess since everybody has that potential, it would be fair to like treat everybody with the same amount of respect. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important because, yeah. go, go ahead. Oh, whether, you know, whether you're rich or poor, or, mm -hmm. you know, um, whatever your circumstances be, everybody has that same spiritual potential. Right, and we skipped over, but the book of James talks about that a lot because they're having a problem in the book of James where they're, they're really respecting the rich and they're devaluing the poor. And in chapter 2 onwards, Paul, or no, who, James, uh, he gets onto them and he's going through talking about how, no, you're all Christians. You're all brethren in this. You're all people who have the same value before God, so treat each other with the same sort of respect and value. So that's very important. That's good. Okay, what else about this should we, should we draw? When you meet a new person, what is it that you should, you should think about them, okay? You want to unlock their potential? You want to unlock their potential? That's important. You feel like you, you owe that to them. I think that's part of the debtor thing that Paul was talking about Romans 1. Anything else? You've got good news to share. Okay, yeah, okay, but let's get, let's get more <laughs> onto the actual person themselves. What are they? Soul. They're a soul. Tell me about the soul. Few defining words. 
Made in God's own image. Made in God's own image. Very important. That is the own bit of little glory that we have, okay? That's not saying that there isn't so much greater glory in heaven, but that person has a little bit of glory in them right now because they're made in God's image. What else? Eternal. Eternal. You have never met a single person that is not an immortal and destructible being. Everybody that you have ever met is going to last longer than every treasure you've ever wanted, than every relationship you've ever focused on, and than any sort of power you've ever wanted. All of those things are incredibly temporary, but that each and every person you've met is eternal. Anything else? This is the way in which Paul saw people. This is why he valued all of them. His enemies, he wouldn't yield because he loved them. Those Gentiles, the people who would used to be his enemies back in the day, he loves them too. All of the poor, all of those who don't command any respect on this earth, they all command his respect because they're all immortal beings created in the image of God. This is the way in which we also should view every person. Everybody we meet from now on needs to be somebody that we see as an eternal being. Somebody who can share in that eternal weight of glory with God. That is the way in which we ought to view every single person. We're running low on time, and so I want to answer the question that may pop up from this. We're talking about loving every person, valuing all men because they have this eternal value. And we have to add another thing, another why into that. And the answer is going to be because God lives in Paul. This is the last way in which we see him expressing his love for the Galatians and for the Jews here. Um, So turn back to Galatians chapter 2. And if somebody can read just verse 20 and 21 for me. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live is in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. All right, so Paul is describing here that he has had, as part of his transition from being a Jew to being a Christian, part of his transition of being a people pleaser to a people lover, is that he now doesn't live for himself anymore, but instead Christ lives in him. And that changes him drastically. Okay, So he uses specifically a few words here about how he lives in the flesh now by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we're talking about Paul living in the flesh. He used to live by the flesh in the flesh, and now he lives in the flesh by Christ. So talk to me for a second. What does it look like when somebody like Paul used to be lives by the flesh in the flesh? I think what that all boils down to is putting your actions first, putting what you want to do first. Yeah, that's super important. Because, I I mean, I don't want to turn to Larry on this subject, but when we're getting into things about bitterness and about people and their relationships with each other, this is incredibly important because that is what living in the flesh determines, whether or not myself is the most important thing or whether or not these other people become the most important things to me. Douglas, where were you turning to? Okay. (laughs) Go ahead, man. (laughs) I I was thinking... um, they were those who live in the flesh by the flesh. They see according to the flesh. Mm-hmm. So they only think about this life in the now. And right. Basically, how to you know fulfill their pleasures or desires, or how to um, you know establish themselves in the now mm-hmm. um, in this fleshly world instead of thinking in a, about the life after. And that changes how we view people. Do they have anything to offer me? Uh, do they have any power, respect, or money, or anything like that to offer me? And that's going to determine how I treat them. Douglas, where I thought you were turning is uh, over to, uh, where is it at? In chapter 5. Because if we're looking for a passage talking about what the works of the flesh look like in the flesh, I mean, that's described for us in the book of Galatians. And I'm not going to step on anybody's territory too much because I just want to make one quick uh, statistical thing about it. So I can read chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 for me.
right, so I want you to do this for me. Count how many works of the flesh are listed here. Now, I'm not going to consider and other things like this because that's super generic. But how many specific things are listed for us here? Yep, okay, 16 is the number I have written down. Sorry, I had to check you on that, but you're right. All right, so there's like 16 things here. How many of these do you think relate to our relation with other people, talking about our valuing them? Every one of them. Every one of them? Okay, I can see you making that argument. That's not what I had, but I can see you making that argument. Do you want to explain on that anymore? We can go one by one if we need to do. If you really want to, man, I mean... The way I saw this, um, what, what I'm going to say here is I picked out that eight of them really had to do with our relations with other people. Um, mostly because, you know, I guess everything could, but idolatry and sorcery and some other ones didn't seem to really have to do with, like, whether or not I value a person. But the eight of which I chose are all listed right there together in the middle of this. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And envy? Sorry. <laughs> And so we have these things that make up half of the works of the flesh. Okay? So some of them are just about you know, self-gratification, but half of them have to do with us not valuing other people. That's what happens when we live in the flesh by the flesh. But instead, Paul says he lives in the flesh by Christ. What does that look like? No, we're not going to do that because then we're stepping into John's territory or somebody else. <laughs> Okay, so we can look through the fruits of the Spirit if we want to because that's a good overall thing. But what else is specifically tying into this thing about our relations with others that we can say this is what it looks like to live by God and God living in you? It's the same idea of being in the world but not of the world. Okay. How does that happen? By living as God wants us, by being holy, by being pleasing and acceptable by God. Okay. And, and in every relationship we have with people, if it's these that you're connecting with them or any others have to be in one way or another to guide through the glory. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's, that's getting closer to the point I want us to get at. All those things are great applications of what's happening. But what has to happen here is that we want God to have the glory. Our values and our wants in our life become God's values and God's wants. And God is really largely about glorifying himself because he is worthy of all glory. That means it becomes our love in our life to glorify God in everything that we do. And our values become his values. So uh, let's talk about a few of these. Let's talk about a few values of God, specifically towards love and our relation to other people. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5. This is when Paul is going through talking about all the different descriptions of love. In that specific verse, he says, love does not seek its own or is not self-seeking. Explain that to me. Not for other people, not yourself. Okay, yeah, so it's not just worrying about what makes me happy, what provides for me in the future, what provides for these other people in their immediate future and their eternal future. That's very good. Anything else you guys got? I think that's the point of it, so that's, that's very efficient. Uh, over in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 4, uh, somebody turn over there and read that for me, because this gives us a very important insight into God's values. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. Okay, that is not the passage I meant for you to read, but let me turn over and look at what's happening. What was that? I said one four. Hey, everybody, we're going to take a Google break for a second. Is it verse 5? Um, yes, it is. Read verse uh, chapter 2, 3, and 4. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God and our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Okay. God's desire is for all people to be saved. For all of them to come to a knowledge of the truth. This fits right in with Paul saying that he feels a debtor to all men to give them all the truth. Okay, God desires this for everyone. Do we? Do we value these same things that God values? 
Do we see each person as somebody that is eternal, and therefore we want them to be with God forever because that's what God wants? He wants to have that relationship of love with them forever, to give them the eternal way to glory and them to glorify God. Is that what we want most in our lives? This is what Paul is expressing all throughout chapter 2. Paul is going through all these different ways and saying, really, this is what would solve a lot of their problems. If instead of focusing on glorifying themselves and living by their own flesh and their own works, if instead they focused on living for God's values, seeing each other as actual people who have eternal images, and actually holding up for the truth that was delivered unto them. Okay? So this is the main point of chapter 2. And you guys may have noticed we skipped over one very interesting story in the middle. And we're going to go back to this very quickly to make our application. Okay? So go back to Galatians 2. And tell you what, we won't even read it again. But in verse 11 through 14, we have this story of Paul arriving, or rather Peter arriving, at Antioch. And while he's there, he partakes in this enjoyment of the gospel with the Gentiles. He's willing to eat with them, he's willing to socialize with them, willing to do all these things with them. But then what happens? Show up. Okay, some Jews show up and <coughs> pressure on them socially. Okay, that's not ever explicitly stated, but they don't eat with the Gentiles. Yeah, I mean, either these people are of the circumcision party, or he just thinks they might. He think he thinks they might be, and so he becomes afraid, right? And so, what's his reaction to this? Separates himself. Yeah, he pulls away from the Gentiles. These people that he recognizes as his brethren, that he's willing to enjoy their company and all these things, and he pulls himself away. Who else joins him in this? Barnabas. Barnabas, okay? The son of encouragement all of a sudden becomes very afraid to be seen with certain people. So this is, uh, this is a very odd story that happens here. It doesn't seem fitting to most of their characters. But what we have to ask in application here is what we see is them not loving people. What we see is them acting in a way that is not loving towards their brethren and towards those who maybe weren't their brethren. They're just other Gentiles. And that seemed really easy for them in this situation, for the apostles or for an apostle and Barnabas here. What makes it easy for us to not be loving towards people? Let's get some application here and then we'll wrap it up. You can look at this text for things that made it not easy for them or talk about other stuff in your life. Peer pressure can cause them. Okay, peer pressure, yeah. Um, do you want to go into different ways peer pressure comes from? Okay, so peer pressure here was coming from people that were maybe part of Peter's family, his national family. And so maybe we feel it from that aspect, people from his own country. And so maybe just, you know, other Westerners might make us feel that way forever somewhere that's not Western. Uh, it's also people that I, I get the idea held some sort of power and that he respected their opinion, and therefore he was willing to bend his own rules, his own morality, to try and fit better in their opinion. Okay? This is easy for us, uh, especially in ways that are smaller like this, where what it involves isn't maybe necessarily standing up and making an image of ourselves, but instead just kind of like slinking back into the shadows and not talking to certain people. That becomes very easy for us because somebody is very weird or somebody is very annoying. And therefore, we don't talk to them. And if you get seen talking to them too much after church, it's kind of like, hey, are you friends with the weird person now? That makes you a weird person. And so it's something where you kind of like almost associate a chain of annoying people together. And we get very afraid of being part of that. We get very afraid of going over and actually greeting those people like they're somebody made in the image of God. Because what we're afraid of is the opinions of all those other people upon us. Okay. What else maybe uh, made it difficult in the situation for them to love these Gentiles? want to take it from the perspective of the party of circumcision, it would be their own prejudices that they had before that. Okay. And I don't think that's just the, the new party. I think that's Peter and Barnabas here as well. I think it's very hard for us to stand up for and love somebody who um, we're new to, okay? Or if we're just new to the idea of loving people. Because for most of their life, let's, let's get this down straight, the Jews were supposed to not have anything to do with the Gentiles. Now all of a sudden they're supposed to, and they obviously don't have the hang of this. Oftentimes, 
we do the same thing. There's somebody who's a, a new Christian, or there's somebody that you know just shows up at church all of a sudden, or somebody you know like new in our class. And oftentimes, you know, maybe this is you can continue on with thinking they're the weird or annoying person if you want to. And we're not used to having to make ourselves go over and talk to this person. We're not used to having to make ourselves go and present the gospel to them, like we want them to be saved eternally. We're not used to making ourselves do that. And so, as soon as a small opportunity shows up. For us not to do that, we take it. You know, here, I don't know whether or not Peter and Barnabas just disappeared. I'm guessing what they did is went and they talked to the party of the Jews. And they just shunned themselves from the Gentiles. And they were like, hey, buddy, you know, we're here among the people that know each other. And we all get along. We have the same things in common. You know, like we're all Jews and stuff. But instead, they, what they did in that is they ignored those people who needed their help. I think that becomes too easy for us because we're not used to helping those who actually need us. And instead we attach to those who we have things in common with because that's what we're very used to. What we have to do in this is just simply get out of our comfort zone, okay? And these are the ways we do that. This is the way in which we make that transition in our life. So quickly to finish up, what was Paul's reaction to seeing Peter and Barnabas do this? Okay, confronted him to his face, and he even goes down in verse 14. Uh, he, he says what he said to him. If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like a Jew? So a lot of Jews and Gentiles thrown back and forth there, but he would not stand for it because Paul would not yield. Paul would not let this slip because he loved those Gentiles, and he loved Peter. And he loved Barnabas, and he loved this party of the circumcision, and they all needed to know the truth here. That they could not force the Jewish lifestyle on those Gentiles, because what we saw in verse 21, that would nullify the grace of God. And that would take these people away from a covenant of grace into a covenant of the law once again. So, Paul would not yield in this situation, and what I like to imagine, at least, Peter's reaction, and I think we can make this accurately based on the books of 1 and 2 Peter, and how we see Barnabas act later on, they made that transition. They changed from people who were being people pleasers in this very scenario to people who later became people lovers. And they were focused on going out into all the world, sending letters into all the world, and teaching every single person about the gospel of Christ, the one true gospel. So that they could all have that eternal weight of glory, and so that they could all be glorified like God wanted them all to be glorified. All right, thank you guys for listening. Uh, that is Galatians chapter 2. I don't know who's teaching next week. Charles is apparently teaching next week. He'll start into Galatians chapter 3. And as I said, onward for the rest of the book, we really get into more doctrine things. Douglas, do you have anything to announce before we're done? Okay, we have nothing to announce before we're done. Uh, Will, in the back, I don't think you've said a prayer for True Seekers yet. So if you can say a prayer for us, we'll consider ourselves done.